good morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Dave Deptula, Air Force Association's Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to our Nuclear Deterrence Forum series. We're really pleased to have join us today, Lieutenant General Tom Boussier, Deputy Commander of U.S. Strategic Command. General Boussier is a command pilot with more than 3,400 hours in the T-38, the F-15C, the B-1, the B-2, and the F-22. That's quite a spectrum of aircraft. And before holding the position of Deputy Commander of STRATCOM, John Boussier was the Commander of Alaskan Air Command, Commander of the 8th Air Force, and the Deputy Director for Nuclear Homeland and Current Operations for the Joint Staff. So welcome, Tom. It's a pleasure to have you with us today. Um, what I'd like to do is start our session by giving you an opportunity uh, to make a couple of opening remarks on the current priorities that are confronting U.S. Strategic Command. So with that, over to you. Hey, thank you, uh, General Diptula. As always, it's a pleasure to see you, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to be part of this forum today and uh, talk a little bit about STRATCOM's uh, mission and uh, how we kind of see the world as it's developing. Um, before I uh, kind of set the stage with some, some opening comments, I'd like to obviously uh, um, acknowledge and highlight uh, our loss of our Marines and Navy Corpsmen yesterday in Afghanistan. I'm sure today is a very tough day for some military families as they deal with that tragedy. So I'd like to uh, offer that uh, we all keep those families in our thoughts and prayers today. As I open up uh, kind of the discussion, I'd like to uh, kind of frame out a, a few uh, thoughts and hopefully that will uh, uh, produce and uh, generate some good uh, discussion and dialogue and questions uh, when I'm done. So for, first of all, uh, it's always been true. Uh, I just think in the last uh, uh, 18 to 24 months, it's been uh, highlighted across the department in a, in a manner and a way that we haven't necessarily realized and that is Every operational plan, every capability in the Department of Defense has the implicit assumption that strategic deterrence and within that nuclear deterrence will hold. Uh, the concept that none of our plans and no other capability will work as designed if strategic deterrence in particular nuclear deterrence fails. And again, I think the Department of Defense has internalized that in the last 75 years. Um, but it's come to forelight in the last uh, uh, couple years based on the environment that we're seeing. So again, I'd offer uh, to the collective wisdom of the, the forum uh, participants today that uh, never before has our nation had to consider uh, the uh, requirement to deter two peer adversaries at the same time. Uh, the way we're doing business uh, to accomplish our national security uh, objectives is being challenged, and we have to intellectually think about that. We also have to think about how our strategic deterrence theories and our models uh, of the past approach and address the complexities that we see here in the present and in the future, and that is a, a three-party problem. We have to think about how we uh, have termed escalation control maybe to escalation management. We have to think about three-party versus two-party. Uh, we have to look at the, the world as it is, not necessarily the world we wish it to be. And uh, although we are designed for a regional, uh, um, in the Department of Defense, we're de de designed uh, for a regional 
threat. Uh, I think everyone can agree that we are facing uh, a global threat. So some quick points just for consideration as we, uh, as we uh, uh, open up the discussion today. So uh, as the uh, Commander Stratcom, Admiral Richard said in previous weeks, we are see seeing a breathtaking expansion of Chinese strategic nuclear capability. Uh, they are building a military, really across all capabilities, but specific to this discussion today, their nuclear capabilities that are capable of a wide range of nuclear employment strategies, as well as uh, designed uh, to coerce. Today, uh, I think we all uh, can realize that both China and Russia have the ability to unilaterally escalate a conflict to any level of violence in any domain, in any geographic location, at any time, with any instrument of their national power. And I'd offer we haven't faced a, a situation, a global uh, situation like that in 30 plus years. So what does that mean? So we, we need to think about a deterrence theory that accounts for a three-party nuclear uh, capable peer. Uh, Russia is the near-term near facing nuclear threat, uh, but China can no longer be considered a, a lesser included case and will, uh, will soon surpass Russia's ability and become the, the leading nuclear threat. If you go back 70 years and you think about the intellectual energy in this uh, country that uh, approached and came up with uh, strategic deterrence theory as it relates to the Soviets and now Russians, we had great intellectual uh, um, input and energy spent on that. Uh, I, I would offer today that we need to, as a nation, as a department, uh, as a federal government approach, uh, how our intellectual infrastructure uh, needs to be updated to think about strategic deterrence theory uh, in a three-party dynamic. I'd also offer that the Department of Defense and writ large, we need to think about how uh, our concepts of escalation control have changed. Um, it's, it's, it would be presumptuous of us to think that we can control escalation in every conflict. Our approach of escalation in the last 25 or 30 years is for a different class of opponent. Uh, you all know we are regionally focused and organized as a military, attempting to solve these global multi-domain problems. Uh, as the commander has said on several occasions, we are attempting to uh, imply and uh, project regional deterrence by bolting on two mission spaces, Homeland Defense and Strategic Deterrence, and two domains, space and cyber. Um, it's a dynamic that as a department, we have to approach and, and change our, the way in which we think. Additionally, I'd like to offer to the group that uh, um, the command is, is uh, developed a methodology and a, a process to uh, assess the risk of strategic deterrence failure on, an, on a daily basis. It's an integrated uh, process by which we account for multiple domains, multiple regions, multiple actions to uh, have a, a, a assessment of the world as it is uh, and try to provide uh, best military advice and an approach of uh, whether we see the strategic environment is uh, getting uh, more tenuous and affecting uh, strategic deterrence 
or if our actions are, are uh, holding and, and providing um, the ability for a more stable uh, region. So General Deptula, I'll pause there and I'll let uh, uh, you lead the discussion, but hopefully that provided a little bit of uh, uh, ammunition for folks for discussion. Yeah, no, thanks very much, uh, Tom, for that uh, good overview of uh, what's on uh, Stratcom's mind uh, today. Uh, so let's jump into some of these issues in a bit more detail. Um, you mentioned China, obviously, um, that's a, one of the key states that is the top of uh, your concern at Stratcom. Uh, and they're building up their nuclear arsenal at an unprecedented uh, pace. Could you elaborate a little bit more on uh, just what uh, you view uh, these actions uh, in the context of the strategic implications uh, for that buildup for Stratcom? So, uh, General Deptool, I guess I'll approach that question from a different couple different angles. Um, so, the the first angle I'll approach it from is. Uh, um, the commander has described the uh, expansion, diversification, modernization of uh, the Chinese nuclear arsenal as breathtaking. Um, I think most people have seen in the public, uh, uh, public realm in different articles over the past few weeks, uh, the constant discovery of different uh, capabilities and capacities that uh, open source have been uh, discovering and publishing in different articles. Um, it's, it's evident to say that there is a uh, rapid expansion uh, with purpose uh, from uh, uh, China. And uh, um, it can no longer be uh, aligned with the, their public uh, um, statements of uh, uh, minimum deterrence. I'd also offer that uh, that ex rapid breathtaking expansion is coupled with the fact that we don't have like we have with uh, Russia, any uh, treaty uh, frameworks. We don't have any strategic stability talks. We don't have any avenues to uh, um, alleviate any uh, misperceptions or confusions. Um, and so that dynamic, uh, if you look at it from a, a US, Russia, China perspective, and you look at the mechanisms of uh, stability that we ha we've had for uh, you know, going on seven decades, um, with Russia, we don't have those same mechanisms with China. And so to my previous comments on how we're approaching uh, the threat being presented by China and how uh, we have to come up with a theory of deterrence that applies to now a three-party uh, dynamic. It's something the command is working on uh, quite aggressively. And uh, um, we, we welcome the intellectual energy of the uh, department and uh, academic institutions and, and forums like this to be able to tease out that discussion. I appreciate that. Um, uh, clearly it, it's an area that has not uh, been broached before. And, and as you say, uh, it's one of uh, extraordinary concern. Uh, now, let me shift gears a bit, uh, but still in the same realm of importance, critics of nuclear modernization uh, often propose that we simply delay elements of the nuclear triad, such as the uh, LRSO and ICBM legs of the triad. Um, how would you uh, characterize delaying modernization of one leg of the triad? And how, how would that affect our overall nuclear deterrent capability? Uh, 
So I guess, I guess I'll approach uh, that question again from um, a couple different angles. Uh, the, the first thing, um, obviously, we have an obligation to do uh, is maintain it, the foundational uh, capability and capacity to defend our nation and, our, and uh, um, our allies and partners. So that's the fundamental uh, premise that I'll start this uh, kind of the, quite the uh, answer to your question. The, the next uh, uh, angle I'd, I'd offer for consideration is everything we do has to be uh, based on our national security priorities and the threat that's being presented. So I think there's, there's a lot of debate in the public realm potentially uh, on recapitalization of the, the uh, triad from more of a fiscal perspective uh, versus a threat or national security perspective. You can't have one without including the other, in my opinion. So from a national security perspective, um, if you step back from uh, you know, the palming process and you look at the fact that this is the second really uh, recapitalization of the nuclear triad, it's essentially an every 40 year recapitalization um, the initial uh, uh, triad development in the uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, the first recapitalization in the 80s, and now in the 2020s, uh, we're starting uh, a recapitalization of the triad. So if you take the fact that it's a 40-year recapitalization, and I know we don't necessarily palm or think about in financial fiscal terms in 40-year cycles, uh, but that's the reality of this recapitalization. Um, and if you look at the stability that the triad has presented for generations, and I believe uh, all the way back to the Kennedy administration, they have validated the requirement uh, for a, a, a triad. And I think the, uh, we can probably agree that it has provided strategic stability for great, great nation, great uh, uh, world war um, type uh, events. And if, if we can make those leaps of faith that the threat uh, that we present today is more complicated than it has been in the last 50 to 70 years, um, then I think it, you, you tend to come up with a more uh, coherent uh, appreciation of the need to recapitalize the triad. And then if you understand uh, the fact that that stability um, is absolutely essential for our national uh, security, and, uh, and then if you look at it through the lens that any decision to change the force posture, um, I offer that needs to be coupled with uh, treaty obligations from the threats we see so that it's not a unilateral, unilateral action that affects our national security. So I think if you, if you include all those different uh, aspects in the conversation, I think you'll probably come up with a, uh, a reasonable approach for that. Very good. Now, the Peacekeeper 10 Warhead ICBM uh, was a key part of our deterrent uh, capability when it was deployed at the height of the Cold War. Uh, and unlike the Minuteman, uh, it was based on a modular type of technology uh, similar to the new uh, ground-based strategic deterrent. Could you explain for our audience the advantage of modular ICBMs? So I'm not, I'm not necessarily uh, uh, an expert on the peacekeeper weapon system. And I would offer to you the concept of modu modular uh, uh, design uh, that the GBSD is, is uh, um, being developed on is, is leaps and bounds ahead of, of the peacekeeper weapon system uh, that was uh, developed in the, in the previous uh, uh, decades. 
So just from a, you know, a 21st century uh, design capability, and I'm sure there's folks on this forum that are much smarter on this than I, as it relates to the de de designing and uh, uh, fielding this capability. Um, but modularity provides us the opportunity uh, to take a weapon system, whether it's GBSD or other weapon systems in the department, uh, with the uh, capability and capacity that we see today, uh, whether it's plug and play or open architecture, but it provides an opportunity that we're developing the GBSD as a weapon system that has the ability built in and baked into the design so that when, it, when it's fielded, you have the capability to uh, update, modernize, or uh, adjust as the technology or as the threats uh, um, uh, change. So that, that provides uh, a couple things. It provides an opportunity to, to pace the threat in the, in the decades ahead. It provides an opportunity to use the most uh, up-to-date technology. And it uh, overall, uh, it will uh, um, reduce the sustainment and um, maintenance uh, requirements over the years because of the ability to do that. It's not something that uh, Minuteman 3 was designed or baked into. Uh, and, and, and obviously we can, we can see the effects on that today. No, thank you for that. Uh, now, a little bit more on the triad. Some in uh, the Washington uh, community believe that the nuclear triad should be reduced to a dyad comprising the sea and air legs of our nuclear deterrent uh, in the hope that that would realize cost savings. Um, could you comment on what cutting our land-based nuclear deterrent would mean for the sea and air-based legs of the triad and ultimately uh, answer the question, would this save money? Um, I, I, I guess I'll, uh, again, uh, approach this from, if, if you are going to approach a decision for national security purely from a cost perspective, um, you may or may not have uh, the right data to make an informed decision. So I'd offer that, again, you, you approach it from the national security uh, framework and national security needs, which I think everybody on this forum understands for the, uh, the nuclear enterprise is, is uh, a national level decision. And then you approach it from uh, the threats we face today um, and the stability that the triad has presented for decades now. And then if you look at the, the threats presented by Russia and China, again, uh, the, the decision to make a unilateral uh, um, adjustment to the, the triad I think needs to be eyes wide open as it relates to the threats and then the mechanisms in place to make sure that uh, we maintain our national security uh, um, framework and the foundation for our department um, before we make a unilateral decision to, to cut, cut or adjust something based on cost. Uh, I, I've offered in previous conversations that if we're gonna have a cost discussion purely on dollars that we also have to have a, a cost discussion and, and what it would mean if we did something uh, uh, to the triad. We have to have a, a eyes wide open uh, discussion on the cost to our, uh, our ability to deter the threats that we see uh, uh, presented today with Russia and China, not only today, but into the future. Um, so the cost comparison um, is an interesting discussion, but I think we need to start with the, uh, the threat and then uh, make sure that any decision to adjust force posture is made uh, within the construct of a, a, a arms control treaty that accounts for the same level of uh, adjustments with the threats that's presented. That's how I'd offer that. 
Okay, well, thanks for that, uh, uh, General. Now, um, in all three legs of the triad, um, Strategic Command has to simultaneously phase out existing nuclear force structure and then bring in new technology. Obviously, that's a pretty challenging uh, task. Um, what's your command doing specifically to address uh, the transitions ahead and uh, meet these challenges? That, that's a really important question. So, um, you know, I think, I think most people understand that there's very little operational margin left in the current force structure. Uh, you know, the nation has, for various reasons, I'm not judging whether they're good or bad, but uh, for various reasons over the, the last, uh, you know, decade or so, we made a decision to defer recapitalization. Um, and we are now at the point where we're recapitalizing all three legs and, uh, and, as the commander has said in many forums, there's, there's little to no operational margin left. So if you take that at face value, and then you look at the transition between the current systems and the, uh, the uh, recapitalized uh, uh, weapon systems, the transition on all three legs, as well as uh, nuclear command and control is extremely important. And uh, that transition obviously is, is uh, led by our services. So the, the Air Force and Navy components assigned to US Strategic Command that are, are leading the efforts in the acquisition process to uh, recapitalize. Um, there's a, there's a uh, very deliberate process by which we map out the legacy to the new. And then uh, there's a very deliberate process by which we monitor the legacy systems to make sure they maintain full operational capability in that transition period, uh, that we don't uh, buy risk at the, at the sake of strategic deterrence uh, risk, at the, at the risk of trying to uh, off-ramp a capability before the new capability is on-ramped. And so that, that transition across all the legs of the triad, as well as our nuclear command and control, uh, um, is extremely important. And uh, it's, a, it's an effort that the command is working hand in glove with the, the Air Force and the Navy. Uh, and, uh, and obviously industry that, uh, that is part of that. So uh, uh, excellent, uh, excellent question. Something that uh, we, we tend to uh, overlook as we uh, bring on new weapon systems is we tend to look forward and not back. We don't have the luxury of not taking care of uh, um, our, our capabilities and capacity until the new capabilities are fielded. Uh, our, our mission, as you know, is 24 seven, 365. Uh, we, we can't have a bathtub of uh, strategic deterrence in that transition. Right. No, thanks for that. Um, you know, one of the key challenges uh, in developing and deploying uh, a, uh, some of these new weapon systems uh, is the parallel element uh, that many tend not to pay too much attention to, but is absolutely critical. And that's uh, deploying a new nuclear command control and communication system. Uh, could you talk about some of the key challenges that are involved in doing that? Yeah, again, uh, uh, great question. The, um, the underpinning and the credibility of our strategic deterrence is our ability to command and control it. Um, and uh, so two kind of two different uh, avenues on that. I think most people are aware that a few years ago, the Secretary of Defense uh, directed uh, the stand-up of the uh, new nuclear command and control and communications enterprise center uh, known as the NEC here at US Strategic Command. 
So Admiral Rich is the commander of STRATCOM and he's the commander of the NEC. The NEC is a fairly unique organization um, responsible for not only today's operations, maintenance and sustainment of the, the NC3 systems, uh, but the future. So what we're, what we're kind of calling NC3 next. So uh, as we maintain the current capabilities uh, at full operational capability, uh, the team is working with uh, uh, think tanks, uh, uh, industry and, and uh, partners to come up with the conceptual design for what we're calling N NC3 Next. Uh, the dynamics of the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s uh, versus uh, 2020 and 2021 with uh, you know, cyber threats and capabilities and capacities and technologies. So that transition between the old and the new will be uh, key also. Uh, but the command has uh, stood up a new organization to take that on and make sure that we, uh, we uh, get it right as we field our new uh, weapon systems uh, for the strategic deterrence mission. No, thanks, for, th thanks again for that uh, insightful uh, answer. Now, Admiral Richard uh, testified earlier this year before Congress that if the United States uh, did not modernize its nuclear deterrent, uh, it would be going out of the nuclear deterrence business. Could you elaborate on uh, that perspective? So I, I think I've kind of hit that a little bit. I'll just reemphasize the fact that uh, um, our current weapon systems, uh, although uh, effective and safe, we, we have we have bought all the operational margin in our current systems that we can. And so uh, um, the, uh, the recapitalization of the triad is essential and there's, there's very little, uh, if any, uh, space on the back end to uh, uh, defer that. If, if the nation decides to uh, um, retool how we do strategic deterrence, um, again, all I would offer is that the conversation needs to start with the threat, needs to start with the impacts to any changes, uh, and then uh, not only to the U.S. national security, but to, to those of our allies and partners, and then understand the, the, uh, the dynamic that it may play into uh, for uh, um, nonproliferation. So all of those, all those things are intertwined. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure you can make one decision without uh, consideration of the other. Um, and uh, again, like I said, I believe uh, all the way back to the Kennedy administration, there's been uh, validation on the importance and uh, value of a, of a triad. Um, excellent. Um, former director of the Air Force A-10, General uh, Clark, um, said that one of the most serious challenges that the U.S. military faces is how to integrate nuclear and conventional forces effectively in the event of a conventional conflict with either Russia or China, um, who are both uh, nuclear armed. Um, how are we doing in this regard? So, um, you know, like like previous uh, uh, topics we've discussed, the uh, the the depth of intellectual uh, energy being uh, applied to that conceptual uh, con uh, design is, is uh, probably uh, not as deep as we had, had wanted in the past. Um, 
the command is uh, very excited about uh, Secretary of Defense Austin's uh, integrated deterrence uh, concepts, and uh, and we're all in for for helping uh, uh, mature that. Um, but uh, you know, the the world as we saw it, say fifty to seventy five years ago, and the world as we see it today, uh, with with uh, with two near peer nuclear adversaries with with pretty aggressive uh, conventional and nuclear uh, capabilities, uh, plus space, plus cyber. Um, and uh, the global nature of it, it's no longer, uh, I don't think we can uh, approach any, uh, any threat as a regional threat anymore. So taking all the, all the capability and capacity of the department in all domains, you know, and, and the accounting expertise in 11 of our combatant commands and matrixing that to approach a uh, integrated global view of how to approach a threat. That's what, just within the department. And then I'd offer to you uh, the threats that we face today will require a much greater integration of that. And that's a whole of government. We, we tend to throw that out a lot, right? Whole of government. Um, but uh, I think, uh, we could probably agree that uh, the threats are uh, global, multi-domain, and crosswalk every of our federal departments, and it's going to require a uh, concerted effort uh, to make sure that our national security needs and, and those of our uh, allies and partners are accounted for. No, thank you. Now, I've asked you some pretty specific questions. Let me give you a, uh, a chance at some open-ended ones. What are Strategic Command's most serious challenges in uh, sustaining and improving extended deterrence? So I guess uh, the, our ability to uh, provide an extended deterrence umbrella to our allies and partners, uh, the credibility of that is incumbent upon the credibility of our nuclear um, uh, systems, our, our, the fabric of our command, uh, our human capital, uh, our, our NC3 system. So the credibility of our extended deterrence umbrella is a byproduct of the credibility of our force. Um, you can't have one without the other. And uh, uh, I think there's uh, been recent dialogue and discussion about uh, uh, if, if that extended deterrence umbrella is uh, um, shifted, that uh, there's, there's great concern about uh, uh, proliferation across uh, uh, the planet as, as nations uh, concern uh, about their own national security uh, take action. So um, the, the foundational element of an, our extended deterrence is the credibility of our strategic deterrence in my mind. Uh, and you've talked and emphasized uh, a bunch about uh, the Chinese nuclear threat. Um, what do you see as the most serious strategic uh, nuclear concerns emanating from Russia? So um, from a Russian perspective, I think everyone's aware that we have, uh, you know, the, a, uh, a fairly coherent framework under the New START Treaty uh, for, you know, another five years that accounts for the strategic weapon systems. Um, so I think there's, uh, there's stability in that realm. Um, there's, there is, however, great concern uh, with the, uh, whether you want to call them uh, non-strategic, we, we address uh, the uh, uh, 
ever-growing arsenal of Russia as uh, non-treaty accountable weapons um, and their, and their uh, rapid expansion of their non-treaty accountable nuclear weapons, as well as uh, their development of their exotic or, or uh, novel weapon systems um, is, is of concern. Uh, so uh, we think that uh, there's, there's a dis, dis, discontinuity between the, uh, the, the framework of New START and then the activity that is, falls outside the New START Treaty. And uh, um, that's, a, that's a growing, expanding threat that uh, we have to account for. Um, and as Admiral Richard has said before, we don't have the luxury of just trying to deter one adversary, right? So our, our, uh, our, our marching orders are to uh, uh, account for all threats and, and deter those threats 24-7, uh, 365. And uh, the unfortunate part is, is those threats are growing uh, every week as we, uh, as we watch this unfold. Well, uh, John Boussier, thanks very much again for taking the time uh, to share your insights with us today. And on behalf of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, uh, we certainly wish you the very best in this era of ever-increasing challenges. Okay, what I wanted to do is leave uh, plenty of time for questions from our audience. We've got a pretty large audience today uh, and folks listening to our conversation. Uh, and as a reminder to uh, our listeners, you can participate by using the raise hand function on your de device. Uh, and if you would, uh, when I call on you, please uh, state your name and the organization that you're uh, affiliated with. Um, so to kick this off, uh, let me turn it over, the, turn the first question over to John Turpak. Good morning, General. Can you hear me? Have you loud and clear, John? Very good. Thank you, sir. A uh, couple of questions. I wonder if you could share some of Stratcom's thinking about what three-way deterrence looks like. Uh, are we are we thinking of Russia and China as a cooperative block to be deterred jointly? Do is, are there some advantages to a three-way uh, strategic deterrence uh, equation where they have to deter each other? Uh, how are we thinking about that? That's the that's the. $20 question, John. Um, I've got so, 20. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, that, you know, that was kind of what I was alluding to is uh, we have fairly, fairly coherent two-body deterrence models. Uh, we have uh, decades of experience uh, with hard thinking and multiple academic and think tanks uh, um, thinking through that uh, two-body deterrence model. Um, if someone has a three-body deterrence model they have laying around uh, uh, their office, we're, we're anxious to, to, uh, to read it. Um, so, uh, so we're looking at it from a, from a, obviously from a global perspective, from a, from a two major power nuclear adversaries that have two different uh, leadership constructs, uh, differing uh, national objectives. Uh, and I would offer to you, uh, uh, senior leadership in those uh, uh, nations that need to be deterred differently. And uh, as you alluded to, we're seeing indications that those nations are cooperating uh, across different spectrums and presenting a cooperative deterrence model versus a, uh, uh, you know, a two to three body uh, linear. So, so that's a dynamic I don't think our nation has teased out. Uh, that's a challenge I would have for everybody on this forum is 
is there some serious in intellectual energy that needs to be applied to this problem? And, uh, uh, and we welcome all the discussion and dialogue on that. Um, it, is, it is the uh, 24-7, 365. It's on the consciousness of the commander as well as the staff here to have a deep understanding of how we are going to deter uh, two near-peer nuclear powers uh, that have global aspirations and impacts and, and do that as we uh, maintain the stability and provide our extended deterrence umbrella to our allies. So that's, that's, a, that's a tough problem. Sir, if I could uh, also follow up on something you were just talking about before you opened it up to questions. Russia's novel weapons, like the, uh, uh, the tidal wave torpedo, et cetera. Is that something that we need to match? Is there some kind of asymmetric way that uh, we can answer that? Uh, what, what do you see as the, the future of deterring Russia along these uh, unconventional strategic weapons? Yeah, I, I guess uh, from, from a foundational element, we need to make sure that uh, we have a uh, safe, effective and reliable uh, triad that can provide a, the foundation of our strategic deterrence. Um, I, I would not uh, recommend that we try to develop in-kind systems. I, I am baffled at Russia's development of these capabilities and capacity after agreeing to and, and, and extending the New START Treaty. Um, it, it begs the question, uh, why are they developing these capabilities? And why are they expanding their non-treaty accountable uh, stockpiles? Um, I, I personally think there needs to be a little bit more discussion and dialogue uh, from a European uh, NATO perspective, I mean, there's that's the that's the near term or the uh, the near abroad uh, uh, concern. Um, but uh, I would invite uh, you know international attention onto those exotic capabilities and 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 question the need and why uh, if we're providing uh, and intending on developing more strategic stability frameworks and talk about uh, various different arms control treaties, why would you need to develop those capabilities? All right, sir, thank you very much. Okay, let's turn to uh, Steve Trimble. Sorry, this is Steve Trimble, Aviation Week. Uh, I hope you can hear me now. I have you, Steve. Great, great. Um, so I just wanted to double back on what you said about uh, China uh, surpassing Russia um, and becoming the leading nuclear threat. Um, you know, can, uh, and you said soon. Uh, so can, can you quantify soon uh, to any uh, more extent? And then secondly, um, you know, Russia, I, I believe, has somewhere, somewhere around the neighborhood of 4,300 4, nuclear warheads. Is, is that what you mean, you know, quantitatively by China becoming the, the leading nuclear threat? Or is there some other measure you're using? Um, so Steve, I guess I would uh, approach that uh, from a, a couple, couple different uh, um, avenues. So, so the, uh, the rapid diversification and expansion of uh, Chinese nuclear capabilities, whether those are road mobiles, whether those are recently discovered ICBM fields, whether that is the multitude of short, medium, and long-range capabilities, uh, that they're, they are developing. And I think most folks on this forum understand that uh, last year, China tested more ballistic missile uh, um, capabilities than the entire, uh, uh, I think the entire world uh, combined. 
um, there's going to be a point, a, uh, a crossover point, where the number of threats presented by China will exceed the number of threats uh, um, that currently Russia presents uh, as a, as a uh, matter of fact. Um, there's more to it than numbers. Uh, we don't necessarily approach it from a pure uh, uh, numbers game. Uh, it is what is operationally fielded, what's the readiness status of those forces, what's the posture of those forces, and then what's the, the intent of that posture of those fielded forces. So it's not just a stockpile number. Uh, it's, it's, it's much, I think, a, a much more uh, uh, um, informed uh, uh, decision on that. Um, but the, the pacing threat is what the, the commander has articulated. Uh, there'll be a crossover point, uh, we believe, in the next few years. Okay, let's turn to Steve uh, Schinkel. Steve? Hey, sir, this is uh, Colonel Steve Schinkel. I'm an instructor at the Naval War College, and uh, I appreciate your time today. Can you talk about how the debates about the declar declaratory policies of the United States impacts your mission, whether whether uh, whether it's no first use or uh, sole use of nuclear weapons, and then also how the recapitalization of our nuclear enterprise may impact uh, extended deterrence uh, with our partners if they start questioning their our ability of our nuclear arsenal to be able to provide that uh, umbrella over. Hey, thanks, Steve. Um, I know that's a, a discussion in the public realm that's been uh, somewhat active over the last few months, I guess. Uh, I, I won't, uh, you know, the decision on uh, a declaratory policy of no first use or sole purpose, that's a, that's a policy decision uh, from the administration or from the Department of Defense. Um, and uh, so I won't, uh, I, I won't debate whether that's going to change or should change. Uh, I will tell you how, how U.S. DRATCOM uh, approaches any policy change and uh, so from a de declaration uh, um, policy change, um, I don't necessarily think it would have a, a dramatic impact on day-to-day -day operations because our ability to provide strategic deterrence um, and, uh, and provide that, uh, um, that foundational element to the department, you know, if there's a policy change or not, that our, our JOB remains the same. I think the, the discussion's more along the lines of how does that affect uh, our, our extended deterrence umbrella to allies and partners. And, you know, that's a, you know, that's a policy decision. That's a state department and, uh, uh, you know, a nation state decision. If, if there's a change, then there might be some, some belief or some action with allies and partners that they may believe they have to change uh, their own national security uh, um, posture to account for uh, the threats that they see. Um, so, th so that's kind of the dynamic of an operational impact versus, uh, you know, a, a ally and partner impact. And then uh, I guess the last thing I'd offer for consideration is, um, you know, we also have to take into consideration uh, how Russia and or China or other adversaries would perceive any changes in policy. Um, and, uh, and then account for those changes in policy on the other domains and other threats that we perceive to be uh, uh, either today or developing in the future. Again, there's multiple different angles to having a conversation about that. Um, uh, the command is uh, 
uh, ready and able to provide our best military advice to uh, uh, who, any, who anybody wants to ask our opinion on that. Um, and uh, I guess uh, that's how I'd offer uh, we should approach it. Over. All right, let's turn to uh, Patty Jane Geller. Great, thank you. Uh, this is Patty Jane Geller from the Heritage Foundation. Um, I wanted to ask you about the nuclear sea launched cruise missile that was included in the NPR and the uh, budget request for FY22. Uh, can you just kind of explain to us um, why we need that capability and how it might contribute to uh, deterrence of the, the Russian and Chinese growing threats? So uh, the, de the decision from uh, the department to uh, develop and field a, uh, a potential sea launch uh, cruise missile uh, is, uh, I guess, a couple fold. So any, any weapon system being developed in the department as it relates to strategic deterrence is, is a direct reflection of our, our ability to deter nefarious activity or uh, actions from our, the adversaries, potential adversaries. Uh, so there was a decision that was made in the, uh, the last NPR that there was a capability and capacity gap, uh, and the decision was made to uh, develop that capability. Um, as you well know, there's an ongoing effort right now for a national defense strategy and nuclear posture review that is, that is we'll review those, those uh, uh, decisions and requirements. Um, but whether it's the sea launch uh, cruise missile uh, or its other capabilities and capacity the department has, it's all in the eyes of uh, being able to deter activities, in this case, Russia and China, assure our allies and make sure that nobody thinks that they can uh, use a capability and capacity that there's not a ability to deter that action. Uh, so that's, that's kind of how I'd approach that. And, uh, and like I said, it's currently being uh, reviewed uh, under the nuclear posture review. Here's one from uh, our uh, chat section. It's from uh, retired Major General Ken Israel. Have China and Russia's improvements in undersea surveillance increased the risk of US nuclear submarine vulnerability? It is not clear if subs enjoy the same probability of survival before all the current undersea sensor advancers, advancements have been made. Hey, Ken, it's good to Good to hear from you. Um, I guess uh, uh, whether it's an undersea domain or it's the air domain or it's the cyber domain or it's the space domain, um, we, we will never discount any threat or any development of a, a technology that can hold us at, at risk. Um, so I, I guess uh, I'd approach it as uh, uh, we're, Ken, we're comfortable today in our ability to uh, to operate in those domains and provide a credible uh, deterrence, uh, both from a US perspective and an and a allied perspective. And here's one uh, from uh, Ambassador Tom Carter. Uh, General, could you please discuss how many operational ground-based interceptors we now have and whether they'd be effective against the new land-based Chinese ICBMs? So um, our, uh, I think most folks understand that our, our ground-based intercept uh, capability is designed and fielded against a regional threat. Um, 
it is not designed against a near peer uh, adversary. Um, uh, and and I, again, we are in the process of going through a missile defense review also with the, with the, the new administration. Um, but that capability and capacity is designed against rogue nations uh, and our ability to make sure that uh, uh, we have the capability and capacity to defend North America uh, from that. Okay, let's switch back to the live audience. Um, how about uh, Sangmin Lee? Yeah, this is uh, uh, Sangmin from uh, Radio Free Asia. So General, how do you see the US nuclear deterrence against North Korea at this moment? How do you assess current North Korean nuclear threat capability? So uh, th thank you for the question. Um, uh, we obviously have a uh, uh, ironclad relationship with, uh, with South Korea and um, uh, our strategic capabilities uh, um, that are currently fielded, we believe uh, sh should provide uh, North Korea pause in any uh, nefarious activity, but our ability to uh, uh, deter uh, North Korea's uh, nefarious activity, either uh, regionally or, or, uh, or outside the region uh, we believe our capability and capacity uh, accounts for that. And, uh, and uh, I, I appreciate the, the question because I didn't necessarily highlight it in my, uh, in my opening comments, um, but our, uh, our ability to day-to-day uh, uh, -day keep an eye on uh, North Korean activity to make sure that we account for that in our strategic deterrence models is, uh, is sound. Okay, let's go back to our uh, uh, chat room questions. Here's one from Tom Earhart. Uh, General, deterrence theory is always centered on capability and will. How does the reticence and retarded pace we see for recapitalization and modernization of US nuclear forces affect adversary perceptions of will at the nuclear level? Hey, Tom, it's good to, uh, good to hear from you. Um, you're right. So the, the underpinning of our, uh, our strategic deterrence capability is not just the weapon systems. It's not just the, the human capital and the expertise fielded out in the, the Air Force, Army, Navy, Marines, and Guardians. It's not only our ability to command and control that. Um, it's it's the, uh, the, the accumulation of all those capabilities, both, both uh, uh, fixed and human, that present a credible deterrence uh, to our adversaries, and then uh, uh, a, a credible uh, uh, deterrence umbrella to our allies. Um, the underpinning that, obviously, uh, the ability to uh, deter or influence uh, any um, nefarious activity from uh, potential adversaries is the uh, foundational will of our nation uh, to be able to, uh, um, to do that. Um, again, I'm, I'm comfortable uh, that we have a, a, a sound uh, strategic deterrence um, foundation and uh, the, the national will um, hopefully will never be tested in an actual um, uh, case. Uh, but I will tell you, uh, as, as the commander said on several occasions, uh, these capabilities, this capacity and this, this mission's Base is the only capability and capacity in the Department of Defense where success looks like nothing happened. And, uh, and, and so that every day of every week, our force provides that umbrella and that underpinning 
uh, and, uh, and that wouldn't be able to be true if we didn't uh, present to our adversaries that we had the will. Here's one from uh, Merrick Krauss. With Chinese capabilities in space and our reliance on spaceborne communications and navigation systems, what plans do we have for increased resilience of the triad if our space assets are degraded or removed? No, excellent question. Uh, you know, again, we've, we've kind of concentrated the, our conversation on uh, our nuclear capabilities. Um, but I, I think it's safe to say that uh, the, the pace expansion and diversification of uh, uh, the Chinese military arsenal extends beyond just their nuclear capabilities, cyberspace and conventional uh, capabilities. Um, and uh, and I, all I can say is I can account for the fact that the department recognizes that and, uh, and we have uh, uh, plans and operational uh, uh, procedures in place to make sure that uh, we have the capability and capacity to uh, command and control our forces uh, uh, 24-7-365. Um, here's one from uh, Dr. Ed Kaplan, the Dean of the U.S. Army War College. Um, what could the Army do to best improve its contribution in the nuclear arena? That's a great question. Uh, as an alum of Army War College, um, uh, you know, the, the ability for the collective um, joint team in the Department of Defense to be able to intellectually tease out how we're going to approach the threats as we uh, both see today and in the future, I think, is, is as a minimum, uh, you know, the intellectual horsepower that's at Army War College is, uh, is pretty impressive. And uh, so from a, just from an intellectual perspective, I think there's great value in contributions from our, our partners in the, in the Army to be able to contribute to that, that, the, that intellectual thought. Um, from a more practical standpoint, um, uh, you know, continue to expand your capabilities and capacity that provide the, the conventional deterrence framework uh, for uh, our approaching our, the adversaries. And then I would also offer that, uh, you know, you have within the Army, although a, a very small percentage, you have uh, some really uh, exquisite uh, nuclear experts that uh, we obviously have uh, in this headquarters, too, that contribute to our mission uh, every day. And we, we thank you for that. And uh, here's one from Michael Gramala. What are your thoughts about China's increasing aggression in the South China Sea? Are response scenarios being discussed if China was to employ a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon in response to an incident? So I, I won't uh, dwell into operational planning, but I will, I will tell you that uh, um, it, it should uh, alarm everybody based on both regional and, and, and global activities uh, that uh, the, the threat presented by uh, China is not a, uh, is not a singular uh, threat. Um, I think the, uh, the ability for the, the, the U.S., our allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific region as well as in, in Europe ought to take stock of that activity, uh, not just in the Southeast China Sea, but from a global perspective and collectively come up with an idea of how we're going to approach that. Um, and, uh, you know, the Department of Defense, uh, uh, you know, pre prepares for and, uh, 
plans for all eventualities as it relates to uh, uh, that scenario as, as uh, depicted in the question. Um, I just really can't get into you know, operational details of what we, we would have planned if, if that did happen. Well, unfortunately, we've come to the end of our uh, time today. Uh, thanks again very much, General, and uh, thanks to all of you in the audience today for joining us. Uh, from Mitchell Institute uh, and uh, its dean, uh, I wish you uh, a great aerospace power kind of day. Have a good one. Thank you, sir.